can't shit upwards. My name is Matthew Kroll. Ew, please stay on your side of the hole. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Platform. Or El Hoyo. Yes, Oyo? and not El Hoyo. No, I did that wrong. I'm gonna, sure? I'm gonna run with it, but let's yeah. let's El yeah. Hoyo. Um, El Hoyo. No, uh, you know when when I the, the, when I first saw this title, Shahir, I initially thought it was going to be something like The Circle or something about a social media thing. Oh, uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I could, I could see that. Which was going to, you know, I don't know, but then it it, it is it's social, but it's not really media. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I jumped the gun. Shahir, how are you? Uh, I am somewhere between uh, the infinite and my apartment All right now. I can't quite tell, probably because time has no meaning anymore. Um, what day is it today, just out of curiosity? It's Wednesday. Is it really? We are recording this on a Wednesday. If really I don't keep fe- track of it, I die. It really felt like a Friday to me. I don't know why. Uh, I have been... Um, very, very busy, uh, as as you are as well. Um, I think we both described that um, we, uh, for some reason, the self-quarantine has made us busier than ever. Yes. But I will say this. I will say very, very flatly, I'm... I, I know I'm very fortunate to be busy right now. So of course. It's, it's, uh, it's a very good thing to be busy, and I'm not in any way complaining about it. Uh, I just happen to be uh, very exhausted mentally. Um, but but uh, I did actually take the time to listen in to you and Jess Tucker talking about Final Fantasy Advent Children. Complete. And even <laughs> in my downtime, I actually, I don't know what led me to do this, but I think you you had tweeted about uh, Final Fantasy VII, the remake. And so I like signed in, and I was like, oh, I just want to see what this looks like because I remember Final Fantasy 7 when it came out. Uh-huh. Uh, was it was on the PlayStation? PlayStation 1, three discs. Yeah, PlayStation maybe? 1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember just not like real, uh, sorry, turn based action just was not my thing. Uh-huh. I just couldn't quite get into it. Um, but I actually logged into Twitch and started watching someone play Final Fantasy 7 the remake, and I ended up watching for a good hour and a half I think and I, yeah. I was like and it might have just been because my brain had switched off by that point anyway and so anything was good but I was really I, I like I watched it and I was like I'm actually very interested in playing this game now it is not just that feeling it is that good uh it is I can't that good. get over how I've only like again I'm only like 10 hours in <laughs> and uh I have to stay off social media a lot because a lot of people are spoiling things oh, uh, really? but it is uh it is so so delightful. It's literally the only um, recreational thing I want to do. <laughs> I can't <laughs> find time to do it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you checked it out because it is. I think it's worth the price tag. You can actually. I should have said this in the podcast. You can download the demo for free. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll do that. But now, granted, because- you, it's about maybe a uh, an hour, hour and a half demo. Um, that's, that's literally all the time I have. Then, then you should do that. But the only problem is if you really love it, you then have to play through the beginning again, which actually isn't a problem because it's actually quite fun. Um, um, yeah. I was going to say, the, the, but the, you guys did uh, Advent Children, and I did listen to the episode. Uh, I have seen Advent Children a number of times. Um, and which is shocking to me. I, I, I figured that would be a little bit shocking to you because I do think it is a hot mess of a movie. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, when I was in New Zealand, I bought a modded Xbox off someone off the internet. And they, you know, you know what a modded Xbox is where they, it was came like uh, remodded with software. And a no, lot I of, never uh, did that in college <laughs> and soldered in chips to my original Xbox. 
I was never uh, as enthusiastic enough to do it, so I just paid someone on the internet to do it. Um, but they 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 provided they put a whole lot of movies uh, on it um, that I could watch, and Advent Children was one of them. And I was I was just about to direct uh, an a-, a film with an action sequence in it, and that the I I can't remember what the scene, but it's a scene where they're they're throwing each other up. It's in the midpoint of the movie, like everyone's kind of tossing each other up and for, for yeah, a big they're battle. fighting uh, Bahamut. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's all it's all a bit of watching, but I would rewatch that scene over and over again because I had this theory at the time, and I still kind of believe this as well, is that video game uh, cutscenes were doing better action than most movies were, and I was really trying to figure out the the relationship between the camera and the choreography and and how that worked sure. because I also believed at the time I think Spider Man Two had come out and the cutscene for the Spider Man Two game was better than anything I'd seen in any of the movies. Uh, so I really, I was really, I was watching that scene a lot. Every time I was trying to like think through how I would set up a scene. And by the way, nothing I ever shot looked like Advent Children for many reasons. But every time I would set up a scene, I would think about just the way in which the dynamics between the camera and the action was being used in that sequence. And they're pretty, pretty remarkable. Now, Even though yeah, the film is a hot mess. The, the film is a hot mess. I mean, there's no question. And you can go check out the episode. Obviously, it was lovely to you know, have Jess Tucker uh, back in your stead. Uh, she says hello. Oh, thank you. Hi, um, but this this week, Shahir, and I know we're going to do emails first. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do a, a film that is a completely different tone and tenor from Final Fantasy Advent Children. Complete. It might have the same color grade. might have a similar color grade in places. I think it has a lot. I mean, Midgar. If, listen, I'm, well, thematically, in places, this wouldn't in exist I'm in Midgar, but the tech and the way it sort of uh, shits on people below them, I think, would make sense. Oh God. Uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. I, I, you actually brought this up because uh, you watched the trailer. I'd seen the trailer earlier in the year because this film won the uh, Midnight Prize or the, whatever that prize is uh, uh, at TIFF uh, and was immediately sold to Netflix. So I'd seen I'd seen portions of the trailer around that point. No, I might have actually watched the trailer for this because I knew nothing about it. Mm. Um, so I and I'd heard it was great, and then it, it it obviously it's difficult to watch this film and not think about Vincenzo Natale's Cube. Uh, sure. At all, you know, this is you know, like in that realm. And the Cube is a film I love, and I've watched many times before. So I was kind of a, you know, I was interested to see it, but I had it had until you mentioned it, completely fallen off the radar for me. Um, uh, other than the fact that I haven't actually had time to watch any movies, yeah, but that yeah, I only picked it because it looked like something interesting and new on a streaming service that I hadn't even heard of before the day I looked for it. Right, right. Um, yeah, because at the time we were tossing it around, I think I suggested. The Social Network, or right. the talents of Mr. Ripley, or I still have—I still want to do my 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 kids movie from the '80s that is only available on YouTube. Oh. Uh, Again, <laughs> I watched it. I watched it, so we'll do it. I, I, uh, I you're going to do a lot of heavy lifting on that one, but <laughs> really, you got nothing to say about it. Oh, I got stuff. Oh, say stuff. It's just I would, quick. I'm, uh, I'm no. Uh, so we will do Zits or whatever it's called. Uh, spy Trap. Spy Trap. <laughs> uh, eventually, check it and out. I am. And I am gathering some some good intel, though nothing confirmed at this point, on uh, for our Lord of the Rings episode. So actually, that's what I have been watching. I have watched uh, two of the Lord of the Rings films so far, uh, and I gotta say, uh, it is uh, it is uh, it is a struggle at this point. These are long. Well, they're I like, long. Yeah, they're I mean... very long. And it was like, and and it's it's the disc. You know, the fact that you have to like switch discs. It's such a mental barrier for me to to like 
get through get through like an hour and a half of movie and then and then have to switch disc to watch another hour. Oh, okay. Well, get ready for Return of the King when it's two and a half hours of movie and then you switch the disc. Oh my god. Uh, I, and I like long movies. Don't get me wrong, but I was yeah, just like, I am just I am this struggling through this. This should not phase you. Also, I like switching discs. I really? used to love the VHS of Titanic when you had to like pop the second VHS in. Again, <laughs> Final Fantasy VII when it came out, three discs. Really? Uh, I don't know. I love it. I I really dig it. It's a natural stopping point. Go to the bathroom. Get a snack. Um, I think the other one that I the first time I had experienced that was, I think it was a laser disc of Goodfellas, that ooh, I think you, you had flip to it. You, you had, had to, to flip, flip the, the laser disc. Yeah, laser disc. Yeah, it was in the it was in our public library, and so I I went and watched Goodfellas in our public library. Oh, perfect! You're really <laughs> educating yourself. Side note: Can we just give uh, a standing ovation to laser disc? Ah, uh, Laserdisc. I loved Laserdisc. I never owned one. Like you, I, I either borrowed it from a, a public library or my art teacher in middle school had one. And he yeah. let me borrow it for like a night once. Yeah. And like, I think I watched that old like claymation Mark Twain movie. Oh, I don't know. Uh, which is but... actually quite terrifying about <laughs> creation. Oh. Uh, and, uh,. I believe there was a Star Wars on there on Laserdisc. Um, there was a lot of stuff on Laserdisc. Uh, Laserdisc was a delight. Uh, the also analog format. Uh, Laserdisc is an analog. Laserdisc format? is technically an analog format because it is. A, it's it's basically a, it's a, what I loved about Laserdisc is it's a giant CD, and we're old enough to remember what CDs were. But, but it's not were, a just, CD. CDs but, are digital. CDs are zeros and ones. Laserdisc used the zeros and ones in a way that it's not like a computer is deprogramming it. It's actually different the, the, I forget how it works but it's actually the same way that a record does it like a vinyl record but instead of a needle it's a laser and that's not what CDs do anyway someone who knows the tech better yeah, than me but I, I do know that it is analog and CDs are digital okay I, I I don't have any information to refute or or verify what you're saying I used to know this a lot this used to be my like thing at parties where I'd be like man and push my glasses up but now I'm like struggling to remember the facts I just remember when I found out about it I did research and it blew my mind uh, so shout out to laserdisc if you yeah, have I a laser disc at home, you should tell us which movie we should review on that format at onlymoviepodcast <laughs> at gmail.com you can email us in. I could just imagine, though, when Laserdisc came out, I think the marketing for Laserdisc imagined that you would put Laserdiscs on the same shelf as you would put records. Yes. And, you know, like it would be, it's that kind of layout. Although, I don't know. I, I, were records popular when Laserdisc came oh, out? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> so then I guess that wouldn't work. No, but it was like the idea is that, you know, people had record, people still had record shelves at that point, but compact discs were out. We are definitely, definitely showing our age. I'm working on a show with, uh, uh, some very uh, uh, younger YouTubers right now, and uh, YouTubers, age, yeah, my age is definitely showing. Yo, uh, with a lot of which this. YouTubers you got? Can you say? Uh, Can you say no, which I YouTubers you got? Oh, I actually cannot say, uh, but it is quite exciting in the YouTube space. Uh, regardless, um, the uh, I did want to bring up a couple of emails. Though I know that you you had the opportunity to read this email last week, but you chose not to. I wanted to uh, wait for you. I felt uh, bad that you were working and that we normally do emails together, and I was trying to keep it special. Ah, uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But there is actually—I'll let you read the email out. But there has been some follow-up to this email, and it's a—it's a—it's a really great conversation. So uh, I appreciate this from Brian. All right, this is from Brian, and Brian says, first of all, hi, Brian, uh, and he writes. 
I thought I'd send a message to talk about my experience with my most recent rewatch of Austin Powers. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of the way to say, yeah, baby, not like Austin Powers. He, <laughs> he continues. Uh, like the two of you, this film caught me in the cultural zeitgeist when it first came out. And my experience is nothing unusual there. But then I moved to the UK and I caught it on TV one day, only to realize midway through that it was a different cut of the film than had been shown back in the US. In particular, there were two extra scenes in this cut. After two scenes in which Dr. Evil's minions are comically dispatched, new, to me, scenes appeared. They showed the family of the minion happy at their future prospects now that the new job that the minion had could pay for the family, etc., working for Dr. Evil, until they received a phone call informing them of his tragic demise. This, of course, is the uh, uh, minion who gets run over slowly by the steamroller. And so the tone shifts from, oh, wow, how ridiculous, to... Now, don't you feel bad about yourself at laughing when a human life was snuffed out, which really didn't seem to fit the spirit of the movie to me. So for me, this rewatch got me reflecting on the differences between British and American comedic tastes and was wondering if this better suited British tastes. <laughs> oh, uh, the British. And there's a little more. I, I paraphrased a little bit there, too. But thank you, Brian. Uh, yeah, I, re I mean, I remember seeing this scene in the special features when it came out. Along, with, I think there's another one where they're like, hypnotize Christian Slater. Okay. Like as a guard when they're trying <laughs> to get into Yeah, I do vaguely remember. You know what's funny is when I was watching the movie, I had I do remember the scene being in my mind because the thing interesting thing was is I watched the film in New Zealand and it had this scene in the theatrical release. Um and when it didn't play when it didn't happen in the uh in the version that I watched here, I didn't really think about it. I just kind of said, "Oh, maybe I misremembered that from another one of the Austin Powers movies." Um but I emailed Brian back because um he was talking about the fact that he moved to the UK and I had moved to the US uh probably a little bit earlier than sure. Brian did. I'm not sure how or what well point. Um, but while I was in the U.S., I went to the U.K. for uh, for New Year's. And I remember there was this interesting experience, which is that uh, the film Notting Hill had just come out. Oh. And, I, and, I, and as I got on the plane, I had seen a billboard for Notting Hill in America. And when I got off the plane, there was a billboard for Notting Hill in the U.K. And, there was, and it was the exact same billboard, like literally... You know, frame for frame, except for the fact that Hugh Grant was in the in the American version was wearing just a sweatshirt and sneakers, but in the British version he was wearing a uh, a blazer and uh, and trousers. Huh. Um, and I was and I was just I I remember that being really struck by going oh. They definitely sell this movie in a very different way between the UK and the US, and it's it's very subtle, but it's a but but obviously the way they think about what different audiences want um, changes the way they approach the film. And I think you know to Brian's point, it's funny the way he describes it as being um, uh, shifting the now tone. You don't you have to feel bad about yourself for laughing in human life that was snuffed out. I remember in the in when I watched that scene in New Zealand, the that scene made the scene funnier. Like yeah. the fact that he got that he got um, smushed slowly, and then you realized he had a family, and he'd just been killed. It actually it heightened the absurdity and the ridiculousness of it all for me. Um, so I, I don't know that. if that I, I don't know why it was cut out in the in the U.S. version. Uh, you I mean, suggested earlier it might have been for time. I, I maybe a time. I, you know, now that I'm thinking about, it, especially now that we're talking about the platform too, or we're going to be, you can kind of see. Okay, I don't want to get political because, as we know, there's no politics in film. <laughs> um, 
but uh, there's an interesting sort of, and I would call it a very American uh, outlook on things. Tell me if you agree with this. Americans, in general, not maybe not in general, but uh, certain groups of Americans don't like it when you show them that something that they take for granted causes other people pain. Hmm. Uh, because then it makes you feel bad because, well, you're not a bad person, so that can't, that, no. I, and then you sort of don't think about it. And this feels like a scene to me because, again, I saw this scene and I was like, ooh, yeah, this is funny. Like, that's yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the farcicalness of it, and that's sort of where I took it. Yeah. Um, but I, I could totally see in a text group people feeling bad about that joke because exactly what Brian mentioned. Like, it's strange, though, to leave it in for the British version, unless there was basically, like, and again, we're going back to 1997 now, or 1996 when this film came out. So striking prints from a film, it's not like Cats now where you can actually, you know, update sure. the film as and it's thank in you theaters. for referencing Cats, by the way. <laughs> Rewatch it this weekend. Still love weirding out to the experience. <laughs> Did you watch the butthole cut? Uh, um, there is no on. butthole cut. Now, the, moving on. The, um, um, so, so obviously there may have been a case where this, the prints were struck for or already and then just cut for the American audiences. I'm not exactly sure, um, but but it is really fascinating. And, and Brian and I had actually emailed back and forth a couple of times. Uh, he emailed back with a, um, a follow-up because I referenced, I mentioned our I Love Dog, oh, Isle of Dogs episode uh, where there was <laughs> you a- love uh, dogs. Uh, I Love Dogs. Where there was a Japanese translator speaking, uh, you know, translating the words to English in the film. And I was really curious how that would play out to a Japanese audience. And he actually, Brian actually found some reviews that kind of talked about that, that that as a specific trope, and I and and so I think this is obviously a topic that requires uh, a lot more than just the sort of anecdotal uh, uh, anecdotal experience that we're having. Um, but 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 there is something to the fact that films play differently in different countries, and films are marketed to differently in different countries. So, for example, the immediate one that I can I can think of right now is the fact that you know in America, uh, the fact that there was the first on-screen same-sex kiss between. Um, uh, between two women in Star Wars was put out as a press release. So, but it, obviously, as as the film was shipped to Russia, I think it was quickly excised out. So, uh, you know, we we do live in a world where people are very acutely aware of cultural differences. Sure, I and I just find it interesting in this particular case too. How uh, I don't think this was ever a thing. Like, I don't think this was a thing of censorship back then with an American audience in that regard. I think it was sort of like a self censorship thing because the joke didn't work because people don't like it when you call out that something they might be laughing at could be problematic specifically but, in america but as you said the joke worked for us i'm saying a lot i'm saying a large other swath that we might not fit into shahir <laughs> all right well thank you very much for that email brian and i'm sure we'll revisit that topic at some point uh Doton, uh emailed us in for the first time i recently listened to one of your once upon a time in hollywood episodes and i thought you guys brought up a great point about the violence at the end of the film oh. specifically surrounding brad pitt's character what was his name i forgot his name his name's like, brad pitt his name's Brad Pitt. However, that reminded me of a conversation I had with someone recently about another Tarantino film, Django Unchained. A friend told me that the movie was unnecessarily violent and too much for them. 
I explained that I appreciated the violence because it was used to first establish how much an evil motherfucker the slave owners were and how terrible the actions they did to the people who were enslaved. Secondly, it provided the appropriate resolution to the film at the end because it feels like the only fitting way to end these characters. The conversation took a point where I was asking him about the scalping in Inglorious Bastards. Um, I was asking if the scalping in Inglorious Bastards was too much and the overall response was, while gruesome, it was not that bad. Which really had me thinking about how certain historical villains are portrayed in films and who deserves what they had coming. Would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Matt, you want to go first on this? I mean, it's interesting because they, at, at the core of this, uh, at, of this, the, the question in this email, uh, and thank you, Dotun, uh, is who gets to who gets to dole out judgment and who is okay when that judgment is doled out? Right? So, like, okay. I mean, it all comes down to, I think, personal belief structure. Like, uh, and again, uh, sorry, this is sort of in my brain. We're doing an episode on EC on the trolley problem, and I know this is not quite the same thing. Uh, tell me what the trolley problem is. Oh, I'm sorry. The trolley problem is um, it's a it's a philosophical uh, thing. Actually, the Good Place talked about it, but it was developed, I think, in the 60s off of another thing from the 1900s. Uh, but in the 60s, a, a philosophy professor named uh, Philip Afoot basically came up with this hypothetical. Right, you're on a trolley and it's out of control, and you're careening down tracks. And you see in front of you, there are five workers that are going to get hit by the trolley. But you have a lever that can put you onto a sidetrack. And on that sidetrack, there's just one person. Right. What do you do and what is the correct thing to do from a moral or a philosophical standpoint? Right. This is the, the greater good question. The, but, but like, yeah, I mean, it's one of them. So in this particular case, I think, again, like, like there is no correct answer in the trolley problem it's based on your own moral code i think a lot of stuff with violence in cinema with a lot of cinema in general goes beyond taste and it goes to a sense of morals and i mean i don't know particularly and and maybe i'm extrapolating too much uh between uh django and uh inglorious bastards the the differentiation between the 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 violence that befalls the villains at the end. The only difference I could think of is one is up close knife violence and one, well, not counting the Hitler stuff with the flamethrowers and the machine guns, I guess. I don't know. I was going to say one is pure gun violence at the end. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Maybe I talked too long. I'm so sorry. I went off on a tangent. No, no, that's totally fine. I think, you know, this comes down to something we've uh, maybe brought up on the on the podcast a little bit, but I've certainly thought about, um, is the idea that violence um, really is a matter of uh, perception. And, and w there's an interesting thing that happens in American cinema, well, in, in all cinema in general, which is that, vi you know, w because of the way cinema is set up to uh, create identification for our heroes and, and you know, uh, um, uh, obfuscation for our villains, we are accepting of violence against our villains, but not against our heroes. Um, and, and I think the interesting thing that Dotun is kind of pointing out here is that in both cases, these villains, you know, quote unquote, by the moral and ethics of the films, uh, seem to deserve violence, but one was acceptable and one was unacceptable. I think the question for me extends further beyond uh, beyond violence into like 
the, the thing that I've always found it interesting is that is that we have a sort of moral aversion to sex on screen, but a sort of a, uh, a willingness to engage in, in sort of like extreme violence on, on screen. And I, I, you know, look, I, I think the, the reason this question came up, particularly in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think in The Hateful Eight when it came to Tarantino, is that we all agree that violence in Tarantino, you know, violence is part and parcel with what Tarantino does as a mm-hmm. filmmaker. Violence has an extremely cathartic effect in Tarantino's films. But I think... Uh, for me, at least, I found the the sort of the doling out of violence in The Hateful Eight and in um, um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to be a little bit distasteful. And 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 but I didn't feel that way in either Django or Inglorious Bastard. So the question then arose is, well, what? And for me, that distaste arose specifically because uh, I saw. Uh, the Hateful Eight and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in theaters where people were applauding uh, extreme violence towards characters um, that I felt was excessive. Now, I don't think that's wrong or or right uh, in any of the in, in any sense of the word, but I but I do think it's interesting the way in which our into you know like the the circle of morality that we take into a theater has to interact with the circle of morality of everyone else in the theater, and then in a broad spectrum with the ethics of how of of the way we live our lives anyway, and so I think that question of like what we find acceptable and what we don't find acceptable is you know like is a pliable it's a it's a pliable thing the, the where it becomes you know problematic is how it gets doled out on a on a on both a, a a funding and censorship level, you know, like how how much people are willing to pay for movies that are engage in extreme violence versus how much willing people are willing to pay for films that engage in you know six you know minor sexual procl- pro, uh, proclivity. Um, Good and word. I think that, you know that's that's where it gets really interesting for me. Uh, um, I think not I know so the much in whether though. you know like you thought this was good or bad. Yeah, I think I know the difference between say uh, Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time versus Inglorious Bastards and um, D- Django for me. Okay. And I think the difference is the violence and the crescendos of Inglorious and Django was not played for humor. Hmm. Whereas yeah. in Hateful Eight and in Once Upon a Time, at a certain point, the way it's sort of cut together and the way it is shown. It is played for a catharsis that's beyond, oh, these villains are getting their comeuppance. It's played for a laugh. Yeah. And and that's a personal thing, right? Like, that's what I think I can identify. Of course, I'd have to go back and watch all four kind of in a row to really, like, nail that down. But on a gut check level, that's what I think for me. I, I've listened to a few interviews with Tarantino where he talks about the personal responsibility of the audience in engaging with these films. And I think he talks specifically about Brad Pitt's character and the question of what happened to Brad Pitt's wife. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he and he he uh, he says he specifically cuts out before we really fully understand what happened in order for us to make our own judgments and carry that into and, what happens next. And this is strange. OK, so there's a chance that Brad Pitt just straight up murdered his wife with a harpoon gun in, the, in that film. There's a chance. We don't know. Yeah. And that is kind of played also for comedy. It 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 it, it it's not played to be hyper drama. It's like ah, like because the I don't know the the in that regard, but we're not shown the violence. Like I think this is sort of where my where my gut check again specifically for me is like smashing that girl's face into the edge of the banister or whatever. Not the banister, uh, the edge of the the fireplace, the mantle, uh, like twelve times or whatever it was. 
was meant to be kind like this weird, gruesome, funny, and it's not. And I was just like, okay, calm down. Whereas if you cut away from it, if you're not like wallowing in the gruesomeness, I think I can let it slide and sort of enjoy a a, a dark laugh. I guess I don't know. I don't know. I uh, I'm gonna recommend one film that uh, I believe I own. I'm not sure, but it's uh, Christoph Kuzlowski's film, a short film about love. I can't remember if it was a short film about love or a short film about killing. There's two different films, uh, but one of them shows this. It's it's basically you know got this sort of. Uh, Dostoevsky's kind of uh, explanation of like a crime and its consequence, and it's a really interesting film because it's a film about essentially the the murder of an individual versus the murder of an individual by the state, and and it really asked that question of like where is morality, where, where do we sit on the morality spectrum sure. of that, and I think you know uh, I I think Tarantino is a smart enough filmmaker to know how to play with an audience that way. I did not respond that positively to to, to either of those last two films, I Hate Late or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I am curious to revisit them and to, to sort of see if I can evaluate them under that lens. And I, I think, you know, Doton's email um, is really helpful in sort of thinking about that because I have definitely, you know, the... the the violent catharsis of the end of Django certainly had me excited. Sure. So, um, you know, worth worth revisiting and thinking about. We, when we eventually one day get to our violence in cinema episode, which will certainly happen, I promise you, one day in the future sometime. 2023! <laughs> 2023! Um, what was I going to say? And in and, and sort of this societal judgment uh, aspect of what we're talking about will tie in great to the film we're going to get to, but I believe you had one more topic you wanted to discuss. Oh, yes. I, I just thought this would be worth like a five-minute conversation because I feel like we've talked about this at some point before. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the I, you know, like I'm literally at a computer all day. So I do have Twitter open and one window. And whenever I'm like just needing a mental break, I just jump over to Twitter and see what's happening. And mainly my Twitter feed is, is a lot of film Twitter. Uh, and the conversation that's going around right now is perfect movies. Ah. Uh, and, and what, you know, what it started out as kind of a nice uh, thing about like, uh, what do you, you know, d- d- name me five perfect films and, you know, and, and see how it went from there. But then it got, you know, as things happen to go on Twitter, turned into a diatribe of what does perfection mean? What is uh, you know, the idea of perfect in a movie mean, but I really just thought it was an interesting, let's just, if you were asked, you know, to name what you think is a perfect film, where would, you know, what, what does your head go to right away on a gut level? I mean, first and foremost, are you saying things on Twitter uh, that start as a wonderful sort of exploration about the way we process information and how we think of ourselves in a greater context as human beings eventually devolves into a shouting match about uh, nonsensical bullshit? Oh, I didn't say that. I just said the discourse kicked oh, in, no, baby. No, I did. The discourse I kicked in, baby. I said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't think there's a perfect film. But uh, what's what's a film that, like, when you think about, you know, if you if you just said, man, I just, but then I aren't can't we, fault aren't we just discussing, and I know this is semantical, but, like, mm-hmm. that's just our favorite films. Uh, it, well, I've had the interesting experience, which is that I think a lot of Guillermo del Toro's films are perfect films, but I don't love them. Right. And I don't think, I mean, I think I could find, you know, if I want to, and I guess that the, 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 the rate of, a, of how good I think a film is for me is how much I don't want to find those flaws. Right. <laughs> so is there anything that you, that jumps out at you that way? Um, Do you need John Carpenter's any escape from New York? I mean, any... so escape from New York is a film that I love and I will watch at the drop of a hat. I am so just inundated with it. It's the reason why I got into this medium. Um, but it's slow as fuck. 
Like, and if I'm not in the mood for that, or if you don't like that, then it's not quite a perfect. I don't know. And I know we're, I know we're talking about it sort of for us. Yeah. Uh, that is a film that I love intensely, uh, but I think its flaws are also part of the reason why I like it. Like, right, right. I guess what I mean is something where you just you look at it and go, "Well, that's just kind of flawless." Well, no, I think I just said I, I don't think I can do that. I think a, a film's flaws, especially the ones that I both have strong opinions about, one way or the other, right? Uh, uh, are the I mean, the flaws are what really drive you home in one direction, right? <laughs> one direction, the band, uh, um, but <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Well, because uh, the the thing, the immediate thing that th- jumped out at me was, I think it was the two thousand and eight, uh, two thousand and eight at the at the movies, and I saw There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men back to back, and I I remember because those films happened to be of shot at, around the same location, so they shared locations. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, and and I and I remember walking out of No Country for Old Men going. That is just a hundred percent a perfect movie. Like there is that that movie from frame one to you know to the final frame is just absolutely precision perfection you know I, I cannot fault it in any way it also excels in ambition and scope and scale and it's it just it seems effortless effortless and and per you know undeniably perfect at the same time there will be blood was a film that i was like i just cannot wrap my head around this and i can't get my head around what is the third act of this movie and what it's trying to do and i did i wasn't like i wasn't sure about it um but the odd thing is is there will be blood is the movie i've revisited more times than no country for old men i definitely when i've rewatched no country for old men i've gone yep as as the day i saw it this is still perfection but there will be blood as a film that kind of haunts me, and I don't know if it's perfection, but it just it gets under my skin, and I still want to watch it and and soak it up. And I wonder if you know, like the thing you're saying, which is the flaws make it interesting. Um, I don't know if there will be blood has any flaws. I, I still think it's a pretty amazing film, but it's not a film that I like responded to right away. And there was certainly this other film that I saw right in front of it, which I was like, this movie is a hundred percent perfect. Well, first um, and foremost, your double feature was way better than my last double feature, which was Rise of Skywalker and Cats. Well, um, this was, <laughs> I didn't see them on the same night. Oh, uh, oh that, sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, but second, maybe I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit that makes it make more sense, I think, because, I mean, cinema, uh, much like all art, is a subjective of course. medium. Therefore, it has to do with who you're with, where you are, how you're feeling, what the chemical balance of your brain is that day, etc., so I would posit that while there is no such thing as a perfect film, there is such a thing as a perfect film-watching experience. For instance, I mean, I we've talked a lot on this show about, about situations where we've watched films that have just been, like, pure magic and sort of the, the way we, like, are uh, inundated with the exact feeling that we think the, the film has been trying to do. Um... So I think, like, because it's so specific to the time and place and the mental state that you're in, I think that that has a lot to do with it. Case in point, I'm going to give a real fucking weird example. One of the perfect film experiences I ever had was back in high school, or might have been the year after high school. And I was at a drive-in, Shahir. Remember drive-ins? In fact, the only... I think they're coming back in a big way. Yeah, the only (laughs) safe movie-going experience you can have now in 2020. Um, Uh... For our younger listeners, that's when you drove a car to a giant screen outside and you tuned your radio to the audio. (laughs) Uh, It's delightful. And I went and saw Freddy versus Jason with a bunch (laughs) of friends in the back of three pickup trucks. 
And if you've seen Freddy vs. Jason, you can understand how that experience on a warm summer night with the, that level of like setup that we've described with like lawn chairs and cheap beer would be a perfect movie going experience. Right, right. But you but you can objectively or even even subjectively appreciate that that it's not necessarily the movie in that case. But that's my point. I'm saying the because art and film in particular as we're discussing it is subjective. The case in which you are experiencing it also has to play into it. And therefore, and granted, do I think that there are more situations say that a uh, No Country for Old Men can be experienced as a perfect movie-going experience than Freddy versus Jason? Absolutely. Right. But it's still subjective despite the percentages. Of course, it's entirely subjective. I think it's just a funny exercise to think about what how, what you perceive as yeah. perfection and what you don't perceive as perfection. Yeah. Uh, if you have a thought about what you think is a perfect movie, please write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Or a perfect or... movie-going experience. I would love to hear about odd things that just worked out so well for you as a moviegoer. <laughs> uh, please send those stories in because I live for that shit. Live, live or die, uh, much like a man starving on level 300. Um, we are discussing this week the platform or El Hoyo. El Hoyo uh, someone who is, speaks Spanish is going to have to correct me on this. Yes. Uh, but this is the directorial debut of Galda G- uh, Gastelu Uritu. Uritua? Who was a oh, producer boy. before this? Uh, who was a producer before this. Yes, you're correct. And um, and a film that kind of ceremoniously landed on Netflix. I think they were there was some excitement for it. But uh, you know, obviously now in quarantine, this is this film has kind of become an interesting touch point for the way in which society works. Not unlike films that we have seen in the past year, like Parasite uh, or even uh, Snowpiercer. Or um, what's another film about class? I feel like we've this has been you know Joker for example. We've been talking a lot about class in movies. Joker sure an, talks about it a lot. <laughs> she sure does. Um, and this is one with an unusual setup, uh, quite a beautiful setup. Matt, could you read us what the IMDb synopsis oh, is? Oh, with, with absolute pleasure I could. Uh, I actually really like this one for all the wrong reasons. Here we go. A vertical prison with one cell per level, two people per cell, only one food platform and two minutes per day to feed from up to down. And endless nightmare trapped in the hole. Way down in the hole. It's kind of like, it's almost like it's trying to be a haiku. Yeah, it's almost, it is, it's kind of a beautiful haiku. Uh, um, I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, uh, I threw this on in the middle of the night. Uh, because it was the, the the only opportunity I could watch it was at midnight on a on a Monday, uh, and I uh, gladly stayed up to watch the entire thing. Matt, how was your experience of watching this movie? I'm not going to tell you about my experience watching this movie. I'm going to tell you about the direct two hours after watching this movie. Okay. This film caused me to have the first f- move. I I mean I can't. I, the only reason this is happening is because of this movie. I had my first like legit night terror in like easily 10 15 years the night i watched this film wow uh this film to me a night terror like i I I actually don't a night terror is is the most vivid nightmare you can possibly have and you sometimes can realize it's a nightmare but it also doesn't matter you're kind of trapped um and i don't i I, you know i don't want to go into specifically what the night the night terror was about uh but it definitely tied itself to this film. This film 
is visceral. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it rips around your psyche. It shows you fucking horrors beyond some shit. It, 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 and it, and it brings to light a lot of very, very uncomfortable things about Joker's favorite topic, society. Um, but in a very straightforward, uh, no bullshit sense. Even though the, the the premise, like if you, it's it's it does it comes from the Snowpiercer school of social commentary, right? Like right. the idea is that there's a prison that is so tall or so deep, and there's a big hole, and I think it's six meters of floor, and you don't know how many floors there are, but every month you get moved around, so you could be on floor six, and you could be on floor forty-eight, then you could be on floor twelve, and then a hundred and four, like. And the platform comes down with a beautiful spread of food from from platform zero. Uh, apparently, we you learn eventually, slight spoilers, that uh, it's we, er, there's at least a plate of everyone's favorite food on it, and uh, it's basically a commentary on class, being that you know if everyone just took their fair share, there would be enough for everyone, and no one would have to suffer. Right. But people don't, and uh, it is uh, one man's journey through this uh, fucking hellscape, and. Shit, man, it gets uh, dark with a capital three Ds. Uh, it's insane. It's an insane. I mean, that having been said, I loved this movie. Uh, this movie got in my head. I will rewatch it at some point. Uh, not for a bit because I need a minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was not expecting uh, this film to affect me the ways that it did. Uh, what about you? It nestled all comfortable uh, a block from me. How how did this uh, treat you in your mind? Now I started. The, you know, I look. I have a particular fiction for this kind of film because it's a first film, and it's a first film kind of ultimately set in one room. And you know, like what I loved about uh, Vincenzo Natali's uh, Cube is the idea that they were clever with the mark. You know, clever with the production design in order to make that room feel like an entire thing. I I, I didn't see the film buried the Ryan Reynolds film, but you know, like similar setup, which is that it's you know the film takes entirely takes place inside inside a coffin. So I I I love that kind of setup. Uh, by by the way, there's also a, a Denis Villeneuve um, short film, which I did see at a festival uh, called Nick's Floor, Please, where uh, uh, people are eating uh, like this beautiful banquet and then they, and then it gets collapsed down into the Nick's Floor and they have to go down and eat the remnants of what's left behind and it just keeps going, going on. So it's, it had a similar setup. It has a similar aesthetic to this as well. So I kind of felt like I was going to be, you know, of course, just interested in, in the idea from the beginning. I will say the first... 10 to 15 minutes of the film where basically uh, the character of Tremagasi is basically explaining the rules to this new character really felt um, ham-fisted to me and felt a little bit um, uh, a little bit like an ex you know an early case exposition dump uh, you know where this one character is just literally explaining how the rules of this place work uh, it will also seem ham-fisted to me that this character uh, who voluntarily, you know, ended up in, you know, who, who volunteered for the whole with this copy of Don Quixote played by, you know, Goring played by Ivan Mazagir, um, you know, uh, wouldn't know the rules of this place, but, you know, like was having to have them explain to him. But, you know, whatever. I was like, you know, it's just the, it's the start of the movie. We got to get ourselves acclimatized. Um, but, 
Yeah, and and you know, like there's no denying that this film is heavy-handed with its social commentary. It is real. It is literally taking the idea of social hierarchy and playing it out, you know, and and gamifying it, and and you know, seeing the idea of that 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 you know what happens when. Uh, there is a, a limited number of resources that is spread upon a, a, a single group, and that group uh, has to compete amongst each other. What is you know, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, Philip what was it Nash? I forget the 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 mathematician. The game theory of of uh, uh, competition um, plays out in in exactly how you'd expect to play out, which is that if the if if the if the if the people at the top understood that that the people below them suffer, um, if they indulge themselves, then then the, and and didn't do that, then everyone would have an equal share. But I think the thing that's really great about this film is that it. I think it takes a kind of delight in the unfairness of the world. It like it sits out. It's it starts out with this idea that there is a set of rules, and if we just understood what those rules were, society would be better, and we would understand that. But it really, the film kind of takes a gleeful delight in the idea of subverting those rules, and that those, and that inherently, no matter how fairly you play in this world, it is an unfair world. You know, it's almost like the rules will change on you whether you like it or not. And 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 the the world is indiscriminate to individual actions. You know, I think the the biggest um, I think flaw in economic theory is that um, uh, all players in an econo- you know in a in a in economy are rational players. And and you know one of the things that I love about this film is that all players in this game in in ultimately what might be a game or a social experiment are not rational players. So you're not just dealing with the social hierarchy that you have to overcome. You're also dealing with the fact that not everyone is going to act in the most rational way. Um, and and I think that's that's a kind of one. It, it to me it extends this sort of singular idea beyond just playing out the social hierarchy or doing what a lot of films like this would do, which is playing it out for a horror film. I I never felt that the horror in this film, and as you described, it becomes incredibly horrific, quote unquote, but I never felt that those horrors were beyond the scope of what we would expect these characters to do. Right. So very early on, you know, the threat, the, 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 the sort of the underlying threat of this world is starvation. And the underlying solution to starvation, ultimately, which is the, the, the failure of capitalism, is to eat each other. And, and the film is very uh, upfront about that, very, very blasé about that, very much treating that not as a, a sort of moral failing or, or, or a sort of existential horror, like, you know, say a film like Alive, you know, the, the film about the, the soccer players who were abandoned yeah. up on the hills. You know, um, you know it's, not, it's not treating it like that. It treats it very much like, well... Okay, so these are the rules. Therefore, cannibalism is going to come into play, and it sure as hell does. Um, and and I think the 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 final act of this film really went in a direction I was not expecting this film to go, and oddly pointed to a sign of hopefulness. You know, like despite the fact that the film is engaged in this idea that this is a brutally unfair world, there was a sort of sense of hopefulness about the ending, which I really. Really, really enjoyed. So I no, I I I flat out love this film. I loved it more because it's so easily accessible to us. Um, I love the aesthetics of it. I love the brutal architecture of the whole thing. Um, you know, clever conceit executed brilliantly. I I, do, I don't know what else to say. Then then you should watch this movie. Of course. And now we're gonna get a bit into spoiler town. Uh, you know, we're forty seven minutes in. I think that's a fair a fair place to to start. <laughs> 
Uh, there's some interesting. It is okay. You know what we were talking about? Like again, I think this is I 100 percent agree with you. This movie's phenomenal. I found some silly things about it that sort of do smell a little bit like a first-time filmmaker. Okay. <laughs> Namely the little hidden tricks and things in it, like tiny references to like this being hell. Huh. And one of them is there are at the end of it you discover after a while that there are 333 floors. Right, half of uh yeah. And and seven. two prisoners a floor. Why that means there's 666 prisoners in the thing. Also, with the levels of the of the um of the platform going down, if you do the math with it, this is I, I got this with the IMDb trivia page. It was like, oh god, it's on every floor for two minutes. Though it doesn't ever say that. I think in the film, I think that's just what it is in the in yeah. the workings. Uh, with if you add that up with every floor, including floor zero, that comes to uh, what was it? It's something like eleven hours six minutes. Which guess how many minutes that is, Shahir? Uh, I'm guessing 666. That is correct. Um, (laughs) Like, little things like that, and it's so funny because, like, I don't know, the the concept of 666 being the number of the beast is, like, it's, A, false, but B, uh, I don't know, I, it's one of those things that, like, I would roll my eyes if I wasn't, like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you weren't as fully engaged in the conceit, yeah. uh, I think, as, the, as this film is. Uh, I think the, the character oh, sorry. work. Sorry. What were you going to say? No, I just I, I think one of the things that makes this work is that we sit up. It's 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 such a good example of timeline writing in screenplays. Like it sits up right away. OK, this character has six months to go in this uh, in this world. Ergo. Every time we switch rooms, we are we we the audience clearly understand where we are in the film. It like has been know, a month. Yeah, exactly. So we know we're at, you know we're halfway through the mill. We, we, we know we got three quarters of the way to go through. Also, uh, the way it handles time when it wants us to just sort of move forward with time, no matter what, with its sort of like montagey bits. Yeah, it's elliptical editing. Yeah. Uh, holy shit! The elliptical editing, but also the soundtrack. They're like bang, tong, yeah. bang, tong, bang. Yeah. Like this weird, like, not like, I guess I'd call it like proto industrial xylophoning. Yeah. Uh, is so psychologically damaging. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it, it's beautifully executed, is, is the one thing I'll say, is another thing I'll say about it, which is that, you know, like, it's a lot of first time filmmakers, myself having not quite made a feature film yet, you know, kind of, we do. Everyone gets pushed into this idea, make your first film small. You know, like, take the resources you have and make it small. And so, like, that's why you do get a lot of, you know, in the bad cases, films that are set in apartments in New York City. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think this is a great example of it It doesn't feel like the idea of shooting this all in one room is necessarily a hindrance to or a limitation of what the film wants to explore. Right. I think it takes that idea and explores it as fully as it can within this world. And I think um, that that is kind of a uh, just it's it's beautiful to watch a first time filmmaker kind of get that get through that and not make it feel like it was, you know, like at some point, which I can imagine a producer saying, well, we've only got one location. You know, so we're going to shoot this all in one location. Yes. It really does feel like a uh, a sort of graceful exploration of the idea, um, you know, like like the idea that that all spaces are the same, which mean, which is the idea that you know, like everyone is living on the same playing field, but that doesn't mean that the world is fair. Um, 
And I think, you know, like we to me, the the ham fistedness uh, of some of the moments aren't to do with, uh, you know, realizing that we're half of 333, but it's it's the Don Quixote of it all. You know, like the, the quoting of Don Quixote and the tilting of windmills and the idea that Goring himself is, an, is, is a person who has a, a theoretical approach to what the way in which people will react. You know, he's the economist I kind of mentioned first, which is the rational actors. But he slowly realizes very, you know, very confidently throughout, you know, through his experiences, you know, possibly almost being eaten at one point, that that um, the way in which to engage is with force and aggression. Um, which is something you know, like everyone is allowed one object to bring into the uh, into the uh, And there's the some doozies. With, Someone brought a and, surfboard. Someone brought a surfboard. Someone brought money. There was a samurai sword in there. What else did we see? I, I saw. Uh, there's obviously uh, Tomagasi's knife. Oh, the the, the, kind of, the um, samurai plus. The samurai plus. I love. I love that story that he told. Yeah. Of why he chose that knife. You know, like why he chose to bring that knife in with him. Um, and and of course uh, the the woman who had chosen uh, Goring to go in there uh, brought her dog with her. Now there is one thing. One scene I didn't understand in this film. Okay. And it has to do with the death of that dog. With sure. The character. There's a woman who's going up and down the floors uh, and seemingly trying to get down to the bottom um, or doing or looking for a child who m- kills her the, the dog. Yep. And I didn't quite understand why that had happened. I took it as, because uh, at that point, they were on which floor? That was, let me check they were, my notes. They were, up, they were towards the upper level. They were on 33. Right. Uh, at first, I was like, "Oh well, the murdering of the dog could have meant like that she was like saving it for more food later." But that didn't make sense. Uh, it's funny. I got past that real quick only because the film does it a beautiful fake out about the dog. Uh, right, there's a moment where you think the dog is going to go down, the, go uh, down uh, on the <laughs> on the thing because the dog gets up on the on the platform and and it, yeah. you see it like lower and you're like, I I, I freaked the fuck out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then so like when when there's sort of that moment of I, I, that that's a weirdly edited moment too. I, I didn't quite understand that. Email us in onlymoviepodcast gmail dot com. What you think? I don't have a I don't have an answer for that. No, that was that was, I, I think that was the one moment where I was like I didn't understand because what happens is Goring goes to sleep, he wakes up. And the dog has been murdered, and these two women are fighting, and we don't know why. And we just presume it has to do with the fact that Miharu seems to be killing people on her way down. What I liked at the end was the reveal that there was a child at the bottom, yep. and that what I think Miharu, Miharu, Miharu was doing was taking food down to that child every day. You know, like that's that's what her that's what she was trying to do. Um, and and I kind of loved that idea, and I also love the idea that. You know, there were, you know, it's very Kafka-esque, I guess, or, you know, like about this whole thing, which is that there are administrators who, you know, have seemingly put in place rules like no under 16s can go down into the hole, yeah. but they but are unaware of a child at the bottom or maybe fully aware that there is a child in the yeah. bottom. Um, we're not, we're not too sure, but there is, um, you know, there's a sort of biblical, um, you know, uh, biblical take on how to resolve this problem that happens towards the end of the film, which is when uh, uh, Goring ends up, uh, I think, on the fifth floor? Sixth or the floor. Sixth floor? The floors the he ends floor. up on, just so we have it, is 48, 171, 33, 202, 6, and then eventually 
333. Well, he doesn't but actually he, stop there. I mean, that, they get there. He doesn't yeah, get yeah, sent but, there. But I like the idea that he ends, you know, like he basically undertakes sort of a biblical quest. You know, he's even, he's described as a messiah at some point. or The messiah or of self, shit. Yeah, a self-serving messiah. Um, and and decides that if we go down and we we forcefully distribute the food, we will potentially have the ability to send a message to the people up above. You know, perhaps perhaps this entire game is seeing whether people will, whether the entire, you know, 666 people will actually figure out um, a reasonable response to this and work together. Because the, the thing that's separating people is their inability to work together. And, and there's obviously parameters put in place to prevent that from happening. And it's funny um, because, I mean, the, the old adage is shit rolls downhill. And in this particular case, that's very, very true. Like, there's literally, other than the common good, no reason for the people above to ever listen to the people below because the food gets to the people above first and anything they don't want can be thrown below. Like, it's just, it's literally gravity. Like, yeah. which is what, one of the, I think, one of the genius conceits of, of showing uh, this particular class uh inequality and things of that ilk is that it's very easy to understand like you can be the dumbest dummy dumb and fully understand why this feels bad yeah and i think i think the 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 brilliant conceit is this randomized monthly placement yep you know like the idea that that the people who are on the fifth floor um, are indulging because they may have been on the 250th floor before, previously, and so they just want their fill now. You know, like so. It's this idea that 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 um, you know, social uh, upward social mobility doesn't actually create doesn't actually create equality because of a, of a shared experience, but it actually creates a more uh, separated experience because once you've been at the bottom, you never want to return. Hey, why or should college wanna... be free? She here. I had to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that 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 uh, pushing down uh, after you've already gotten your fill. Um, it's it's I, I look. It is heavy on the metaphor. It is heavy-handed. It is in every way, um, you know, simplistic in its thought process about the way in which classes operate. But at the same, you know, unlike a film like Parasite, which is you know this multi-layered film about class consciousness, um, this is a film that is very, very much like plays out as you expect it to play out. Um, but but I think at the same time, when the metaphor is powerful and played, you know, well, I I I think that is a beautiful thing to watch. You know, the other film I thought about a lot was Mother. You know, the Darren Aronofsky film. Oh yes, where, a film where the metaphor is heavy-handed. You know, it doesn't. It's 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 on the nose, very much on the nose. But but it's done with sincerity and played for beautifully and executed well. And this this film doesn't overstay its welcome by any means. Yeah. Um. You know, like the unfortunate thing that happened to the Cube franchise. You know, the Cube film is that it eventually franchised out. Right. And I I think I'm I'm never I don't think I've seen Hypercube, which is the third film. But uh. I'm told that one is actually kind of great. Huh. Um. But you know, you can see that this this can see you know the. The, the beauty and the terribleness of what they've created here is you can see there's enough scope here to expand the world. And that is also the terrible part because it's like, I love what this film does with the world, which is to say, we don't care about how this operates or who's on top and how the food gets made or what happens when you go to the bottom. All we care about is the journey that this character took through it. 
And yes. I think that's what's that's with, what's with, beautiful about it. With very few exceptions. For instance, there is a scene when one of the head chefs above uh, is like berating his his sous chefs because there's a hair in a dessert. And yeah. I, was it the panna cotta? The panna cotta is the message. The panna cotta is the message, but I didn't know if it was specifically the panna cotta because I didn't know that the panna cotta was important at that point beforehand. The, I don't he, think the panna cotta is important. I think it's just no, no, the no, idea no. But it's important to the story. Decent. It's important to the story once it is important. Like it's not that that is important, but they make it important. I'm saying there's a scene where the head chef is berating and like holding up a hair he found in a dish to his chef's heads. To yeah. see who's in it, who did it, who put, who got a fucking hair in this goddamn dessert. I just forget <laughs> if that was the panna cotta. Yeah. Doesn't matter. But like, so we see this glimpse into that world and uh, that's a little bit outside of it, which is the only real moment you kind of get in the kitchen. Oh, uh, no, we, the, the film opens in the kitchen. So we. No, we no, no. Of... I mean, those moments, there's only a few moments in the kitchen, but you kind of see like the the craft and the care they're putting into these dishes and I yeah. think that's part of the me- like. Look, this movie never gets to a point where it's like, "Yep, this is hell," and these people are being tested. You can read it like that, or if you want to, if you don't want to treat it as allegory, that is a plot synopsis that makes sense. Okay, but I love the idea that it's the the experiment itself is the perfect way to prove humans are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Because it is the random changing of what floor you're on every month. It's the, well, I had to go through a terrible thing. Now it's my turn to not do, like, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. Just moving someone up a social class does not a savior usually make. Unless yeah. you are the type of person that brings Don Quixote in a rope into the damn pit. <laughs> uh No, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, and, you know, like, I think it's a wonderful... Um, sort of, play- I mean, I, I don't want to say playful because the film is brutal. Like it is, you know, it's, 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 you will see flesh being torn from people's bones. And being you know, eaten. Like, I think that's being- my line too. I, I think in, in this terrible situation of just blatant torture for, for, for the purpose of proving that people will torture and then showing it in in a very craftful, meaningful way is where I draw the. I felt nauseous, like, and I do not. I don't have nightmares from films, and I do not feel nauseous from films. And this one did it. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, and it, I can only blame the psychologicalness of it. The, the, the shots themselves are great, and it's and it's it's gross looking, of course. But I watch a shit ton of horror, and it, it with people eating people or weird shit, and it does not get me like this did. Well, I think what we do, what the film does is engage in the rules that it sits up, which is the idea that, you know, like what at what point will Goring give in to the idea that he needs to eat? Yeah, you know, like and and you know, there's <laughs> there's a there's a there is something to eat, and you know, and every day something comes down, but there's no food remaining. So, what point will he will he you know ultimately give in to this? Well, I believe it, that was during month uh, month two at floor one seventy one yeah, pretty... when he <laughs> just ate uh, Trimagasi uh, after um, uh, the woman killed him for him. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 you know, like I think that's just it, the horror isn't played for. 
um, show, being as gruesome as he can be. Like, we don't actually see much of the, you know, like the, the piece of flesh they're eating, but it's, it's played within the realm of the world and within the rational or within the, 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 the logical play out of how these characters would behave. You know and what, what it they is? have to do. You know what it is? So zombies eating flesh or stuff like that. People like, you know, zombie movies, the classic, because it's an easy sort of gag to do is like ripping open the stomach and the zombies just pull out the intestines and like eat the intestines, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a goofy hunger. Yeah. But like to watch a human being have to eat pieces of another human being and not even not even in like a in a the soccer player movie the uh, thing. Um yeah. <laughs> uh or in a sense where like the Donner party where you're like just trapped because due to shitbox circumstances or powers beyond your control. This is like uh, there's an e- there's not an easy solution, but there's a fucking solution, and no yeah. one gives a shit. And so it's yeah. that level, it's that added pang of hopelessness that just is nauseating. And again, I'm sorry I'm describing it in bad words. It's a great film, and <laughs> if you can stomach it, and if it sounds like something that you can get yourself through, it is a fucking great ride. Well, I just think, I think the one last thing I wanted to touch on was the the journey that Goring takes, which is this idea that he you know he kind of enters it, enters the world naively, believing that you know like almost in a Don Quixote esque way that uh, you know like it is better to dream of uh, of better you know dream of uh, of knights errant against win, uh, windmills than it is to face the reality of what of what's in front of you, and and through the the fact that he has to consume human flesh and return above. He ultimately, unlike seemingly everybody else in the prison, is willing to take the step, the measure of self-sacrifice in order to try and break the system. Yeah. And, and, you know, ultimately, you know, he goes down to the bottom believing that if we send up a message, it will reveal our, you know, it will reveal the fact that we understand this game. But what he realizes when he's at the bottom is the panacotta is not the message. There is a hungry child, and we should do whatever we can to make sure that child is not here anymore. Yeah. And it's just like this ultimate self-sacrifice. He doesn't. Um, he's not going to be rewarded for that self-sacrifice. He ultimately perishes uh, with his demons at the bottom of the at the bottom of floor three three hundred thirty three. But but that is the sacrifice, and that is the sort of heroism of this film it's the idea of of um you know the almost in a way the don quixote-esque idea of belief uh over o- over um reality um and it's and and it is beautiful you know and i, I love i think that's what makes the film work is a is a conviction of ideas i think we talked about this uh with our i am mother uh probably so where, where we talked about the idea that that movies like this which aren't burdened by stars or franchises or anything like that can just can just be great stories yeah and that's what this is this is just a great story i also love this is a, such a fun fucking nerdy moment for me but when uh goring uh, figures out how deep he thinks the place is based on the speed in which the, <laughs> yeah. the platform lands and then flies up at the end of the day i love that and then also uh the last thing you know the, the child gets in the thing and goes up and there's like hope and all that jazz but the terminal velocity of that plane, uh, there's no way that child is gonna be okay at the top of that that yeah. that hypersonic uh, stone platform. 
There was a moment where he was sitting at the on the on the platform and his foot was uh, yeah, was I did. Off yep. it. And I was just like anxious about that. I was like, "Bruh, you need to hold on and move your foot away from the from the closing, you know, stand clear of the closing doors." Agreed. Uh, the moment that actually really solidified how convict uh, how well conceived this film was was when uh, Imaguri, I think her name is, yep. the woman who lit him into yep. Uh, the thing commits suicide, and she commits suicide because they're at floor two hundred and fifty. Yep. And you know, I I just thought that because she had a belief that the system would work if she could just explain it to people, and she fundamentally believed that there were two hundred floors, and if everyone just ate, you know, uh, enough for the food for the people below them, they would all be fine. But she wakes up on floor two hundred and fifty and realizes everything she believed was wrong. Yeah. And and just decides to end it. Are you saying middle uh, management doesn't have the full story? <laughs> middle management not only doesn't have the full story but they don't know how things well how you know like i guess the ultimate thing here is that no matter how altruistic you think the process can be or how fair the world is it isn't yeah it doesn't really matter the end. and you're not gonna you're not gonna win <laughs> no matter what <laughs> So uh, next week we're doing Trolls World Tour. <laughs> trolls uh, World Tour. No, I don't know. You know what when we're you doing. said Trolls, I was the. I think you said. I thought you meant Troll Two. Oh no, the, I meant like the, the. It is Trolls Two, but but I thought you meant like you know the 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 best worst movie. Oh no, no, I didn't. I meant <laughs> I meant Kristen Fight, guest of the show, uh, favorite film, uh, Trolls. No, uh, I anyway, watch that. I, I we've got to ask Kristen Fight, and maybe if she's listening in, whether that's a fun movie for kids or whether it's an earworm that'll infect our house for the rest uh, of. Uh, she's going to tell you both. I'll tell you straight <laughs> up. Anyway, I'm sorry I jumped the train too much. This has been the only podcast about the film The Platform. Shahir, when you are not becoming the Messiah of Floor Six and breaking <laughs> your bed cot apart and using it as a pole arm to travel down to the depths of hell to feed. Sugary delights to a hungry child. Where can folks find you? You can find me avoiding shit bombs at my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are not feeding on uh, snails and bourgeonet sauce, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me just being at bougie AF at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or PSN. And then, of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing uh, over at Extra Credits. Weirdly enough, after this episode airs, uh, will be I'll be sleeping because uh, we're doing a 24-hour charity stream on Sunday oh, to Monday for my birthday for COVID relief. Oh, look at that. For over on birthday. our Twitch channel. Thank you so much. Well, your birthday's coming up as well, so happy birthday to you. <laughs> uh, but uh, Yeah, but I'm not getting a 24-hour charity stream. Well, you're not doing... I mean, look, I... I you, normally, I throw a big karaoke party. Obviously, I can't do it then. So we're going to do karaoke on Twitch. We're going to do a bunch of other stuff. We have some games. We have all this stuff. Anyway, it's over now. What do you do for 24 hours? Tell me. Uh, we, well, what we did, uh, I guess, if time works in this fashion. Uh, or actually, no. If you listen to this, because this comes out at 530 on Sunday night, we'll still be going. So okay. I think at 6, we're either doing karaoke or something else. We're going to be playing Jackbox games from 1 to 3. Uh, there's going to be something I call Mattel Combat, where people can come on and challenge me to any fighting game that I have. <laughs> uh, all you know, I, you... I, I think I, you know what? I feel confident that I could jump in on that. All right, hey, come on down. Uh, <laughs> listen, uh, I might charge like five dollars to charity for you to play me in Mortal Combat or something, but yeah, let's do it. 
If, if we make it 10, can we do Street Fighter instead? If you buy me Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you're listening to this early, please come check that out and donate to a great cause. We're doing the we're doing the tail end of uh, of hope for uh, hashtag Hope from Home charities, which is split between three great um, three great charities in and of itself for COVID nineteen relief. So that's the best birthday gift you can give me. If you listen to this show, head over to twitch.com slash extra credits. We'll be going from literally noon on the Sunday, April twenty sixth, to noon on Monday, April twenty seventh. Look at uh, that. Cool. Go, Taurus. Are you a Taurus? You I am a Taurus. Yeah, I'm look at that. full of bull. Yeah, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with maybe Trolls 2, maybe Ugh. Trolls World Tour, maybe... Uh, I still kind of want to do the social network. Still if you want to do the social network, we can. Hell, maybe we'll be doing zits. I don't know. Man, we still got to get to Lord of the Rings. I'm very excited about a Lord of the Rings episode. It's going to be good. It's going to be supersized. Yeah, it is good. It's gonna be it's gonna be a 24-hour lord of the rings oh jeez <laughs> all right everybody we'll talk to you next week stay safe everyone bye, bye.